I'm conductor and creator Timothy Myers, and I can't stop chasing the question, what would the world look like with more listening? This is Listening on Purpose. My guest today is Dr. Jeff Myers. Jeff is the executive director of an organization called Summit Ministries based in Manitou Springs, Colorado. And, well, you might have guessed it, my brother. Obviously, listening is an inescapable part of family relationships. And how do we do that best, especially when we might not agree on key things? Can you relate to that? Well, we're going to dig into that, cancel culture, and a whole lot more. I'm glad you're here. Let's get to it. First of all, I'm just going to set a little scope, right, for why we're talking today. Yeah. I was just realizing how interesting to have a conversation with a family member about listening, right? This is pretty apropos. And one thing that I've always appreciated about our relationship was that we we differ in beliefs on on many key issues. Um, yes. And in some cases, we're probably nearly opposite, right, of how we might come down on mm-hmm. A, B, or C. But that over the years, uh, we've always been able to have really beautiful, respectful conversations about these things and about ideas. And, and I've always felt very valued by you Good. A- and by your listening to me and of me in, in those contexts. And so the other thing is on the second season of the podcast, I'm really going deep with moving the needle and in personal interaction. Uh, and because back to my to my why of we don't begin to solve the world's stickiest problems without creating more listening. But that really has to start on the interpersonal level, right? It has to start your your family, your community, because that's how you start to actually create transformation. And so I'm sure. leaning into this idea this season. And so I just thought it would be great for us to have a conversation about how how do you talk to people with whom you disagree right and 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 what kind of listening is necessary and that we can sort of even model that just a little bit um in in the episode um but let's kind of get in maybe a little bit you you brought up debate so let's kind of start there and then where you are and how you got there hmm. Well, competitive debate was sort of my path uh, in the same way that music was your path. Mm -hmm. It was not athletics for me. Uh, I was horrible at every sport that I tried. I was the the losingest player on the losingest team every time I went out for something. (laughs) But I, I remember being caught off guard having to give an oral presentation in eighth grade. And I was so horrified that I wasn't prepared that I just broke down in tears. My teacher recommended me to the ninth grade speech class, Mm. which I took, and found some success there. I found that when I could communicate something, people would listen. They'd find it interesting. I found that affirmation that everybody's looking for as they're going through adolescence. 
So I signed up for the debate team, did that all the way through high school. Uh, my debate partners and I were fortunate enough to win our state's high school debate tournament, which of course led to college scholarships, which I desperately mm-hmm. needed. And then just continued on with that, and in, including being a debate coach at the university that had not just the top debate team, but the top three debate teams oh, wow. in the country. Mm-hmm. So it was it was quite an quite a journey and in the process, I, I was fascinated by argument and how, how we use argument to come to agreement. It changed my whole perspective because I think people believe an argument is equivalent to a quarrel. Mm, right. And quarrels are bad. Right, right, right. But, but what, if, what if we could reverse that? And we are at a cultural moment, Tim, mm-hmm. where this is mission critical. Yeah. Totally. I mean, your podcast, what you're attempting to do in this season is one of the most difficult things I can imagine, but absolutely the necessary thing at this particular moment. And I think I understand why a little bit, because if you you come to a conversation with a set of beliefs, you've got to determine at the outset, what is your goal? Is my goal to win? Yeah. Is my goal to relate? It's my goal to come up with a pragmatic, well, you have your beliefs, I have my beliefs, let's just figure out how to get along. Or is it to sort of move closer to the truth? And And what is that truth? I think most people, oh, right, that's got to be part of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. In every talk, you have to talk about the talk. Mm. You know, what? what is that truth? Now, we make certain assumptions. You wouldn't enter into a conversation if you didn't think there was something out there that exists truly beyond the two of us, because we use language in a way that shows that we believe that these words represent accurately, to some degree, mm-hmm. the thoughts and, and things to which we refer. But conversation is so personal and so intimate you know, if you think about two people kissing, the exteriors of their bodies are are touching. But when they're talking with one another, their interiors are touching. Hmm. And that kind of interiority leads to a level of intimacy that can be really uncomfortable if you're coming into the situation knowing you have a profound disagreement with the other person. Right, right. Right, you in the same way that you wouldn't want the outside of your lips to touch the outside of somebody else's lips if you thought they might hurt mm-hmm. you, you wouldn't want to let that person sort of enter into your mind space if you thought they might hurt yeah. you. So we tend to, as a culture, believe the only way to handle that is to have discussions about ideas at a distance where we're safe mm. from one another. Mm-hmm. So social media came along at exactly the worst possible cultural moment. Yeah, yeah, totally. When we're disagreeing about everything, including the nature of truth, and then it allows us to feel that we are representing our viewpoint without ever having to enter into the interior of the other person or allow the other person to enter into ours. And then, of course, social media companies figured out how to monetize this. Yeah. And all of a sudden, here we are with, with a, so much shouting and posturing rather than the conversation we so desperately need. Yeah. You, no, you bring up some amazing points, and I think we could probably go for an hour kind of mining some of these 
but this is one of the things that is top of mind for me is just the format right now in which we're having these conversations is generally all wrong. It's, 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 it's charged in all of the wrong ways, right? And we're not really creating an environment at all that encourages or enhances real listening. Like you were saying, you know, an argument does not have to equal a quarrel. And the, the faster that we can move past that assertion that those things are synonymous, the, the better off we'll be. Could you talk a little bit, I, you've, I, wa- I do want to get, you have a new book, um, Truth Changes Everything. It's what, we, weeks old. I haven't, I haven't read it yet, <laughs> to be honest. So <laughs> um, <laughs> I have to get, get through school, my last class in a few weeks, and then I have some yeah. reading time. You get through yeah. school. You have a family. Yeah. <laughs> you have a job. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, so. Yeah, so I did. Yeah. I, yeah. Tell, us about, tell us a little bit about the book. Well, I wrote the I wrote the book Truth Changes Everything in a time when I, I had been diagnosed with cancer. Mm-hmm. And when you receive that kind of a diagnosis, of course, I grew up thinking if you get cancer, you die. Right. That was sort of internally my way of processing this information. So I could hear the doctor say, well, if we treat this aggressively, we have a very good chance of beating it. Mm. But at the same time, my thoughts were wandering to all of those road trips that Stephanie and I wanted to take yeah. and the grandbabies that I hope to hold someday. Mm. There's something about getting a bad health diagnosis, or I suppose bad news of any kind, the bad news about a, the end of a relationship or the bad news about the end of the road in a particular aspect of your career, yeah. or even during COVID for the young adults I work with, you know, 70% of young adults say that their greatest fear is being alone. Mm, wow. And so everything about COVID triggered their worst fears. When you have that kind of bad news, your time frame gets really compressed. You realize every phone call you have could be the last mm-hmm. one with that person. Mm-hmm. Every letter you write could be the last one that you get to write. Every interaction you have and this is especially true in the cancer center because there were a lot of people there who were much more sick mm-hmm. than I was. Mm-hmm. And realizing that some of them weren't even, during the my chemo treatment, they weren't even going to make it to the end of right. it. That they'd be gone before I finished my treatment. Wow. Your time train gets really compressed. At the same time, I had this book contract <laughs> and I had to ask the question, if this is the last thing I ever get to write, is this what yeah. I write? And so I decided that I would write it, and I would write it not just as a defense of the idea that there is objective truth that's knowable, not easily, but knowable, mm-hmm. because I, I, I was interested in that. I kind of went from political science to communication into philosophy in my academic mm-hmm. career. So I'm interested in that. How do we know anything? But at the same time, I just decided to go back in history and look at people who I felt were heroic mm. to me because in times of great crisis, they stood they stood strong. Yeah. And in this particular book, I was focused on people who I called Jesus followers. Mm. You know, in church history, you would call them uh, Christians, 
But I, I thought Jesus followers probably better because some of them were fairly rebellious against the church mm. itself. Right, right. But they, they, they had this belief that they had picked up from Jesus that truth exists, and it's not just a set of logical propositions, it's personal. Mm. And, and, and I just found that so compelling. It's like truth and relationship are two strands of a DNA double helix, that you're really not ever speaking the full truth if you're not relating, and you're not really being a good relator unless there's an element of truth to it. So just in the same sense that those nucleotides connect the two strands of a DNA double helix, then truth and relationship connect. So that was the whole goal of the book. Uh, for some people, I think for my editors, it was kind of a, it was a really tough sell. Mm. Uh, I've never actually had editors say, you can't say that kind of, kind of wow. thing. Uh, but it, you know, I, at the same time, I'm thinking, hey, I survived cancer. I am not afraid of you. Right, right, right. <laughs> right? So I think, I, but I had to make a case for why this approach should be used. And I'll, I'll let people read the book and make the judgments for themselves, but I hope that people come out of it with a sense of hope, mm. that times of crises are actually the very best times in history for us to learn and grow. If we seize them, right? Um, it, you, you have to seize them. You have to engage rather than escape. Yeah, that's, that's the essential starting point. Yeah. So talking a little bit more about this, I, I like how you've kind of brought these ideas of truth and relationship very near each other. We could go very far down this rabbit hole of truth, right? And understanding that more and what you talk about, you know, objective truth. I'm interested in exploring a little bit more of the context of we have differing truths, right? And this could be whatever, we just have differing ideas about an issue Mm -hmm. Or we're from opposite sides of the, of the globe and have very little context for each other's cultural, religious background or you know anything in the other person's life. So when you're looking for this and to relate to somebody who does not necessarily share your truth or even your objective truth or might read your book and say, well, I actually disagree with your thesis entirely... Um, <laughs> there will be people. Yeah. Yes. But you know, that's the risk that you take when you write a book and, and you do the same thing in artistic performance. Someone said, oh, it's easy to write a book. You just cut open a vein and bleed. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and when you're performing, it's the same thing. Right. It's an extremely vulnerable place to mm -hmm. be, but someone's got to make the first move. That was sort of how I was yeah. thinking of it. Yeah. Right. And if not you, then who? right? Right. Yes. And the way I think of conversation is, let's just set aside the question of truth for a moment, because people, some people say, seek the truth. Other people say, speak your truth. Right. Uh, let's We can at least agree that we're coming at whatever it is that we're trying to talk about from different viewpoints. So I would say, instead of saying, I have my truth, I would say, I have my viewpoint. Mm. I have my perspective from which I view whatever it is that we're trying to agree on here. Mm. And, and so if I think of it that way, then I'm free from having to engage in a power play. Yeah. 
that, that I somehow have to use manipulation or even shame. I think we've become a, a dramatically shame-based culture yeah. because people say, well, you, you not only shouldn't say that, you don't have the right to think that. Right. You should be ashamed of what you have just said. It's different even from when I was growing up where my professors would say, I may disagree with what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. We're sort of in a different moment. And I, and I think it is just the nature of power relationships and perspective and confusion all layered over with anxiety, even depression yeah. that people experience. Uh, on a, I mean, 53% of the young adults I work with say they regularly struggle with anxiety and depression. It's incredible, isn't it? Well, I, I, I hear so many people and, you know, even of our generation, I, I, talking about this and, and really carrying massive amounts of anxiety. And I think a lot of it, a lot of it has to come down to the, the, the environment that we're creating, that people don't feel heard. Right, people don't feel seen yes. a, at all, and and you know you mentioned the shame, which I think is a really interesting view. But I always think about it. Also, it's easy to re, to connect it to intelligence, right? And just to say, well, yeah. if you were smarter, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you wouldn't believe you wouldn't have that viewpoint, right? Or and. <laughs> there's really little of trying to understand the viewpoint and just dismissing it from an intelligence perspective and like wearing an I'm with stupid t-shirt. Right. Um, like, <laughs> but we, this is yes. really where well, we are culturally. Right. Yeah. You've got to have some explanation for the disagreement that privileges your position. That's sort of how people think of it. And if you can attack another person's intelligence or their social background or how they arrived at their thinking or the fact that they, they haven't really considered it very well. I mean, we do a lot of polling at some ministries, not because I want to be a polling company. I just want to understand the cultural mm. moment. And one of the things we found is 81% of people say they think respectful listening is the very best way to talk to a person with whom you disagree. Mm. Only 5% of people say, I respond to disagreement by cutting the other person out of my life. <laughs> So, do you think that data is right? I, I, did, I mean, do you question that if, if that data is an example of where people answer something in light of their best self uh, when they're actually submitting oh, a survey? or Because I, that number feels yeah. high to me. If it, and maybe that's just you have a great sample set, right, <laughs> of people who actually do want to yeah. engage thoughtfully. But if I were to overlay that to even... Right, the community in which I live in, that data would be that would be an overwhelmingly positive number. Yes. Well, it's aspirational. There's a difference between what people do and what they wish they would right. do, or, or what they would like to be able to do. And I, I'm sort of an optimist. I, I, I hope that if they were well trained, that they could actually fulfill that desire to listen better. And, and to engage more personally in conversation. So I, I think it's hopeful. I think what I'm always trying to do in my polls is figure out where the room is mm-hmm. for agreement, uh, where the room is for potential growth, uh, where people actually are. And that's why I, re- I sample Democrats, Republicans, independents um, equally. Mm-hmm. Actually, it usually skews toward being more Democrat than Republican. Mm-hmm. 
and increasingly more independent. So I know as far as politics go, people across the board tend to say, I wish we had more conversation, Mm. more dialogue. Mm. And whether they'll actually seek that out is a function of how fearful they feel. Uh, Maybe they feel inadequate. I don't know what to say, so I don't want to do anything. Or I don't want to offend people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or I'm actually afraid that I'll be canceled. I'll, I'll somehow be ruined in my career or family relationships if I try to engage. It's better just to walk away. I want to bring something in right now that I think could be useful. And this is I, the idea of searching for shared values. Because when I look at people with whom I disagree, well, for example, you and I, we, like we might not agree on some issues, but underneath... Yeah. Our shared values, well, starting with survival, right? But then then survival of those around you, (laughs) Um, um, which is, you know, the basis of our species, I guess. But we're searching for the same values, right? What do we share? Like, I mean, caring for for people around you or in your immediate family, wanting them to be not just survive, but thrive. And... How in your work are you looking for these shared values that kind of can create this bond where you can walk away from a debate, a conversation, some sort of interaction, even feeling closer to that person, though your viewpoints possibly diverged even more? Yeah, I think it's possible. I I think your and my relationship is that kind of relationship. Uh, Stephanie, I'm going to tear up. Stephanie asked me the other day, who are five people you would want to have for dinner? I said, anybody? Historical, past, present? And she said, yes. And so I named off several, and then I named you. Oh, wow. Thank you. Because I thought, no matter what other conversations taking place, having Tim in the conversation is going to make it better. Mm-hmm. And I really feel like that's, that those shared values you're talking about are so important. Mm-hmm. We have a shared value of a desire for beauty. Mm. Uh, we aspire to justice. Even people who don't agree about truth will still say there is a, there's an ideal we have, mm-hmm. that some things are just and some things are unjust, and we want it to be more just. We have a desire as citizens to have a productive relationship with our fellow citizens. We want to get along with our neighbors. If you, if you really think about it, the things we have in common, those shared values are so important that, that they can become the basis of, of good relationships. Mm. Let's go down the cancel culture route a little bit. I know this is something that's really, that goes deep for you. Mm -hmm. You wrote a great long form, piece, not a, not a book, but a long form article that I read and you have, well, someone in your life was devastatingly impacted by cancel culture. And, and I want to get into this a little bit because it is terrifying. How, how do we create change in, in this? And, and, you know, what have been your experiences with this? Well, I had a friend who was quite outspoken and he, you know, he's one of those guys who likes to poke the bear. And so he would make all of these comments. Well, people 
he, he wasn't, I don't feel like he was mean about it, but he was definitely trying to provoke controversy. Mm-hmm. And now he was my friend and there were times where I just, I would cringe when he would say something or write something, mm-hmm. but he was my friend. And I watched as his university really uh, pushed him out. And it was largely because of the cancel culture at that institution. And I, I watched, it was during COVID, and I watched him spiral. And ultimately, he ended up taking his own mm-hmm. life. I don't, I don't feel bitter at the people who, who attacked him because I don't feel that he was ever afraid of being attacked or of attacking back. I mean, he was just sort of that individual. He enjoyed debates. He enjoyed the discussions. He would be perfectly happy uh, tweeting something at you as sitting down and having a cup of coffee with mm-hmm. you, okay? And he was always like that. But I really felt that I, I felt frustrated and embittered at the, the kind of system that would say the best way to solve our problems is to silence other voices. Mm. And I think what triggered me him about that is just as a student of history, I look back, for example, at Lenin mm-hmm. in the Soviet Union, who his approach was, why would I even have a debate with you? Because if I have a debate with you, then I'm allowing you to speak. Mm-hmm. And if you're allowed to speak, then some people might agree with you. So the better thing is to make sure that your voice is silenced. And of course, when people wouldn't be quiet, and we had them killed. Right. And, you know, and the same thing happened in Nazi Germany and innumerable cultures, sadly, all over the world. We saw similar things happen where you solve problems by silencing other voices rather than engaging with them. And I felt like, based on my friend's experience, that that's, that's the trajectory. If we keep going down this path and we can't figure out how to engage, then... We will end up in a place where it's all about power and power is ultimately about physical force. It has to become about physical right. force. Right. Well, and we're creating a zero sum game. Right. And that's, isn't that interesting? I'm so glad you brought that up because it, if only the material world exists and there's only so much to go around, then what we're fighting over is for everything. Right. Like if, if I have it, if I, if you have it, it's because I don't have it. But if you open up the possibility that there are ideas, that there can be innovation, that information is a real thing, that we can have inspiration. If you open up that kind of a world, then all of a sudden, we're not just fighting over this toy or that toy, that we can all have what we are looking for, which is that, as you mentioned at the outset, the opportunity to feel heard to be heard, to be seen, Mm -hmm. and then to somehow together figure out how we're going to move forward. Yeah. So in talking more about cancel culture, what are things that you encourage students you are teaching? You do a lot of speaking. Uh, What are solutions that you're putting out there that people can employ just to just to combat this on a, on a personal level. Yeah. There were three things. And, and the first one is just what in philosophy we call epistemological humility. Mm-hmm. 
So for students, when I'm doing this with high school students, I'll just draw a big circle on a whiteboard and then I'll hand the marker to one of them and say, imagine that this circle represents everything that could possibly be known. Mm -hmm. Now I want you to come up here and I want you to make a circle inside the circle about what you mm -hmm. know. Of course, they come up and 99% of the time, they just put the tiniest little circle inside the big mm -hmm. circle because they can't, they realize, oh man, of everything that could possibly be known, I don't even remember the formulas I learned in algebra last semester. Right, right. And, and then, then I ask them, all right, now I want you to draw a circle of what you think everybody all together in all of humanity knows. And their circle is just a tiny bit bigger than their own circle. Mm. So we have all of this that's unknown to us, that we think is potentially unknown to us, which leads us to a sense of humility. And humility is not backing away from the search for knowledge. It's actually, it's actually the intentional pursuit of it, but with recognition of our position. Mm. You know, I'm climbing a mountain. I know where I am in relation to the peak of the mountain. Uh, so that's the first part. The second part is just a time orientation, Tim. And I, I don't know how much time we want to take on this, but when I went through cancer, I realized my time frame is short, but at the same time, I want to engage with people as if the conversation is going to go on forever. Oh, very interesting. So I have both, so I have both this sense of immediacy, but also the sense of patience at the same time. Hmm. And what I, th I think is really cool, you know, I love, I love to study in the classical world and you go back to the ancient Greeks, uh, to this, the, to Koine Greek was the language that was used at the time. And people thought at the time, that's the finest language that could ever be used to express thoughts. And it is very cool. So for example, if you look at the words for time in Koine Greek, uh, there are two dominant words. One is chronos, from which we get our word chronograph, that's clock time. Mm -hmm. And the other one is kairos which refers to opportunity time. Hmm. So Kronos is about the minutes. Uh, Kairos is about the moments. And, and both of those things happen in a conversation. Time, actual physical time is passing, but moments of discovery are being created. Uh, do, you, do you remember uh, Emily Dickinson's poem, uh, the Tell All the Truth But Tell It Slant? Hmm. It's this. It's a great poem because she she ends with the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. Mm. That so we have to in, allow time to participate in good conversation and to grow. Hopefully, you're growing in respect for the other person, in the respect for truth, in the respect for you know certain viewpoints. And then the third thing is, so epistemological humility, time orientation, third thing is curiosity. Mm. And this gets back directly to, to your question. Create curiosity. I have learned five conversation-altering words. Tell me more about mm. that. Yeah. I do have a viewpoint. I hope that you will ask me to share it. I hope that I have a chance to say what I'm thinking. I hope I have a chance to revise what I'm thinking as I think it through aloud. But I, I hope more than anything that I can be a curious person in a conversation, mm. that I can ask questions that will not only allow me to learn, but will allow the other person to learn. And then we grow. And if we're both growing, it, it feels like a win. Even if we walk away and say, 
I don't think I changed my mind on that policy or whatever at all. But we've grown together. We've we've sort of conquered that battle uh, that, that that we're you know all the stuff that we're bringing into a conversation from the outside. You got to win. You know, you got to have a mic drop moment where they just are shamed and right. uh, and just you know to recognize in the middle of all of this, it's going to be a victory if we can carry out this conversation respectfully and lovingly, just by expressing curiosity. Mm. I really love this idea of the two different words for time, um, chronos and kairos. I've never thought about this in a conversation of challenging myself to consider what if this were a permanently ongoing conversation? How would I interact with this person? How would I, how would I treat them? How would I listen to them? And it reminds me, I've been doing quite a bit of mindfulness practice and Mm -hmm. really working to develop a consistent meditation practice. And, and I, I meditation, not necessarily in a single discipline of the idea, right? Um, like I would, I include even prayer in that. And, um, but this idea of really allowing yourself to be in a moment and to consider whatever is there in that moment. And I think that's really impactful to kind of tie that to the idea of the, the Kairos idea of time, of really leaving the clock out of it and considering that it's a completely different paradigm in which you're having a conversation and really being willing to be with whatever presents itself in that conversation. Isn't, isn't that one of the hardest things about listening is that we've got such an awareness of time. I really want to hear you. I've got another meeting in 15 yeah. minutes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, but in really good, you know, in, in meditation and in prayer, you find yourself um, losing track of space and time. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's actually a brain function the part of your brain that is orienting you to space and time begins to uh, relax and go dim mm. when you're involved in meditation. And that's why people say they felt that in meditation they touched the divine. Mm. And, and I'm not, I am not saying that it's just brain function. Because right. there, there's actually, I, I believe in an immaterial reality that exists outside of us. It's not just brains, it's our mm-hmm. minds. Uh, but... But it is, isn't it interesting how our brains can actually cooperate? Mm. Well, what would happen if we could approach conversations in that yeah. way? I don't even know <laughs> how you would do it, but I know when it happens. Right. When I'm in a conversation and with somebody and we're connecting and I don't even realize two hours have passed. Mm. Mm. It can be a really intimate thing when you get into that space of a conversation with someone and it it can be, I think because we are not really established in practicing that in that bonus episode of the first season that with my buddy, uh, me and a Hannah, and that was, we did that one in person, which was, Mm -hmm. which was great, but we finished and he commented, he said, I didn't expect this to feel so intimate. And I, I had had the same experience in, in, in the room of, 
not quite understanding the energy, right? But when two people are in that zone where they're really fully engaged, um, there's something very deep that happens. And it's incredibly gratifying. You could say we were made for this. Hey, everybody, it's Tim. My team and I work really hard to make this show meaningful for all of you, and we'd love to hear from you about what you're liking and also what you might want more of. I'm easy to find on Instagram at Moti Myers. That's M-O-T-M-Y-E-R-S. And always happy to hear from you via email. That's Timothy at TimothyMyers.com. Also, if you're enjoying what you're hearing and would be willing to leave a rating and a review or pass on to a friend, that helps a lot. Back to the show. You mentioned that there were some things that you had jotted down that you were kind of on your mind and your heart to chat about. Well, Tim, I'm thinking of your work as an artist and as a creator, but I was just wondering about the idea of art. You know, you think back to before books were widely printed. People had to copy them out by hand. So not very many people had books. Well, how did people express ideas? And and I, as I was thinking about it, I realized they expressed their ideas through art. Mm-hmm. Look, you, you, you go to, I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem. I've been to you know, a lot of places in, in France and England and other places where you see beautiful cathedrals, for example. People used architecture as a way to express their ideas. Yes. Before they had books. But people use art to express their ideas. It may actually be the oldest form of the expression of ideas that you create something that you know says it speaks for itself, but it also says something about everything Mm -hmm. else because of the way it's located, not only in physical space, but in the minds of those that perceive Mm -hmm. it. So art is so central to how we think and understand and perceive. And I now understand, I think, why people would say, let's have artistic performances. Maybe that will help draw people together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it really can. Well, it's interesting. I, I'm glad you kind of brought this into the picture because there are two things about it. I just jotted a couple notes. Um, I think art and storytelling, right? I, I, I mean, we're... Our, were key ways of communicating ideas before the information age. Um, and we, we know this because it was censored, right? So you, you, you it, it, as soon as something is censored, you know there's some power to it, right? Because <laughs> again, like we were talking about, somebody's you know censoring it because there's information there that they do not want widely distributed, right? Um, in a certain right. or in a certain context, so this is even why Verdi wrote an opera called "The Masked Ball" that's set in Boston, <laughs> which is, and has mm-hmm. nothing to do with Boston or anything about America or whatever. But it's set in Boston <laughs> because that was the way to get around the censors, right? Yeah. In in nineteenth century Italy, and so he knew that he had to change the context in order to be able to have it performed. And, uh, 
you know, Mozart was brilliant at this. Um, you know, if we take a, an opera like The Marriage of Figaro, where he really makes, it's about classism. And, and he really beautifully achieves that the people of the highest class in the piece are the most humbled at the end, right? And, and yeah. if it's sort of a, a, a Downton Abbey, upstairs, downstairs kind of story, that the downstairs people went out and are the happiest at the end, right? And that was a way to sort of address that idea about classism in, in, a, in a veiled but not so veiled way. And so I, I think you're right that art, architecture, music, storytelling of all different kinds has not only been used to transmit information and ideas, but you also made the human connection part of it. This is, for me, really important. When you're operating in a paradigm where you are in a shared space, the game changes because there is something beyond language that can happen. In a performance especially, there are moments that never happened before and will never happen again. That's right. We could stop at the end of a phrase, even an eight bar phrase and play it again and it would be different because it's a shared experience between not just the performers, but the listeners, the acoustics in the hall. Um, and people can have wildly different experiences because they connect to it in different ways. But there's something really special that happens there that is for that moment. And when you are present in that moment, it's a real gift. Recordings are a predetermined outcome. And in, in bringing it into the nature of conversation, right? that we can create interactions that are really singular by doing the same thing that I try to do as a performer is you, you, you create conditions that are favorable for something great to happen, right? Which means you're very prepared. Everyone's prepared. You rehearse, you do all, you, you, you do the craft part of it, right? Um, in order to get to this place where the gods take over. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's a really magical thing. I had an experience just a couple of weeks ago. I was conducting in Atlanta this gorgeous production of Madama Butterfly. And it was, it was not a perfect performance, but none, none of them are, right? And that's not the pursuit. But it was so incredible. And it was just one of those where things came together in a way between the orchestra and the singers and the audience. And we were also doing an international live stream. So there were, you know, cinema cameras everywhere. And, and it just, I mean, it was emotionally thrilling and exhausting at the same time, right? But when you're in the moment and you feel connected like that, I get I get goosebumps thinking about it now. And it's, I really even had to check my emotions a little bit during the performance at some points, right? 
just to remind myself, okay, you, you do have to lead this thing, right? Um, <laughs> but there is something that can happen, something cathartic that can happen and does happen in a live performance. I see the beauty of it. I've, I've, I'm sensing, I feel like I'm sensing it, what your, what your vision is and what you're talking about. I think a lot of people think of art as sort of like the ups, upstairs. Mm, yeah. And the downstairs is logic, reason, you know, national policy, things like that. And then when we need a break, we go upstairs and we get some art. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, we, think of, we think of relationships actually in the same way. We have our logistical part of our lives, but then when we want a little romance, you know, we go upstairs. Mm. But there really isn't an upstairs downstairs. What if it's all sort of one? Yeah. Uh, and, and then art is a way of knowing in the same way that science is a way of mm. knowing or history is a way of knowing or theology is a way mm -hmm. of knowing. And you, you recognize the beauty in each one of those things. I feel like I'm more open to it, Tim, than I, than I was before I went through this cancer mm. journey. And by the way, I've now been in remission for 14 yeah. months. But every day is a gift. I, I don't take them for granted granted anymore because it's there's just too much in every breath mm. that's meaningful. And, and to be able to stop and reflect on all of it is such a is such a gift. Yeah, I remember you articulating that to me after you had finished treatment and knew that it had gone that it had been successful and you know, that things were heading in the right direction. But articulating that to me, that, you know, you were viewing every day that way. And I think that's something really, really magical to that. It's only this moment. That's what you have. In light of all that's transpired before and in light of all we hope will transpire in the future, Engagement is the now. Mm -hmm. It's not treating others as, it, it, not objectifying them. What I mean by objectifying is that we're treating them as a product of the past or as a way for us to satisfy our future desires. Mm. That's the very definition of narcissism, by the way. So when you engage in this moment, um, then other people's reality flowers in our own perceptions. Hmm. You have to say the hard thing sometimes or listen and be told the hard thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to ask, ask for yeah. it. Uh, but you know, when I'm working with young adults, there are a lot of really, really hard conversations. I wish they were all joyful and hopeful, but sometimes it's tough. Mm. You see somebody who's in a really tough situation. I guess I'm learning to just try to talk about the talk and say, I, I want to know what you're hoping will happen in this conversation. Mm. Are you looking for a breakthrough? Or are you just wanting to have someone who will hear you? Right. Um, I want you to know that I see you, I hear you, I value you with whatever capability I have. I don't have all of the time in the world and all of the empathy in the mm. world. But 
if there was a possibility for growth, if there was a barrier that could be torn down, would you want to go there? Um, you know, and I, I think this, I just, for some reason, I thought it was this very strange verse in the gospels that where Jesus goes to the city called Jericho and this man who's blind cries out, heal me. And Jesus walks up to him and says, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> if you were a disciple, you'd just be pounding your forehead. Well, duh, right. he's blind. Right. But isn't it interesting that Jesus did not assume that the blind man wanted to see? Right. Because there are times in our lives where we are sick and do not want to be well because we've kind of wrapped our identity around our sickness mm. to the point where we would feel that a part of us that we value would cease to exist if we were healed. And it isn't just with physical sickness. It's true in every area. It's true in relationships. It's true in our work. Yeah. It's interesting to ask yourself the question relating to something specific. What would you lose by giving up X? And that can be even, you mentioned, a, a, a sickness or that can, some, something to which you identify and that creates some sense of identity, context, safety, you know, a lot, uh, there are a lot of different things involved here, but, you know, what would you lose if you gave up that, hmm. I think, is a really powerful question. Well, when you think, you think about it in that way, you realize that your attachments are really proxies or stand-ins yeah. for what you're really looking for. And, and being willing to give those up takes a great deal of uh, bravery mm -hmm. or I suppose anarchy, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but hopefully it's bravery <laughs> right. that you, you say, I'm going to remove that attachment because the pursuit beyond it is valuable, mm -hmm. but you've got to have a really high view of life and you've got to have a really high value of view of other people. Mm -hmm. To get there, I can't treat people as objects in my path. And um, man, I just, you know, you mentioned driving. Well, that's just the worst. That car that's in front of me is in my way. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's an object. I, I'm not thinking about the person in the car, whether they're worried about whether they're going to be able to get into the correct lane to make the turn that they need to, to go do what they need to do. Mm -hmm. It's just, I just want to get around them. Yeah. Right. And, and so how much of my life am I willing to admit that's, that's my approach mm. and it's not getting me where I want to go. And maybe it could actually be a opportunity for flourishing for other people. If I could change my mind about that. That's right. That's right. Coming back to the engagement piece, being willing to take on what someone else needs in that moment which is a huge part of listening, right? When I'm listening to someone, I, I'm, I'm a fixer. I'm like, I've got a strategy for that. I've got a framework for that. <laughs> but that's not necessarily taking into consideration what that person needs. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, they and and you you've been you've had a coach, so and, and I recommend it. Everybody who you know, we all need coaches. We all need counselors, therapists. Yeah. We we need people uh, who are a little bit removed from our situation to help us see it more clearly. Uh, but when you when you're in that coaching situation, you know you have this coach constantly asking you, "How can I support mm-hmm. you?" Because we're not interested in what in the moves that have to take place. 10 or 15 moves from now, what's, what is the next move? And then we'll evaluate that move. Is that, did that get you where you wanted to go? Mm. Oh yeah. Well, not really. I realized I wasn't really wanting to go where I thought I was yeah. wanting to go. And I think it's, I'm, I, you know, but the clarity that comes out of the experience is, is useful. I wonder if we could, in, in relationships, what that would look like to sort of set people other, f- set others free from our expectations of a certain outcome mm-hmm. and then just be there. Well, that leads me right up to the question. <laughs> what would the world be like with more listening? The world with more listening would have more pauses, mm-hmm. more silence. Because even as you and I talk, I notice a lot of their pauses. Why? Not because we don't know what to say next. It's because we're thinking through what's just been said. Mm-hmm. And at least that's what we aspire to. Yeah. There'd be more room for silence. And I think there would be more room for growth. One of the other questions I typically ask based on our conversation. And the the question I like to ask is if you could transmit a brief message to everybody in the world that everyone would understand, <laughs> if you could broadcast it, what would it be? But I want to shift that to if you could go and deliver it and be with this idea and them, what would it be? Hmm. I think at the heart of what I want to communicate, now I'm, I'm specifically thinking of the young adults I work mm-hmm. with, who I have so much hope for, for the future, and are so mired in anxiety, is that you're, you are smart, and you're here for a reason. Mm-hmm. And I see it. Mm. And I see you. That's amazing. This has been incredible. Thank you. I've loved every minute of it. Thank you for listening to Listening on Purpose, hosted by me, Timothy Myers. I hope you're enjoying our deep dive into the world of listening and that you're finding it useful in your life. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the show, please share it with others and leave a rating and review. That really helps. You can visit listeningonpurpose.com for show notes and to subscribe to our email newsletter, which includes special episode highlights, more information about our guests, advance notice of some upcoming special events, and other news. You can find out more about me at timothymyers.com and from there connect with me on social media platforms like Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. 
Listening on Purpose is a production of Extra Musical. Executive producers are Meredith Carter of Maduras Media and yours truly. Creative strategist is Julie Fiore. Listening on Purpose is edited by Brian Baltashevitz for Balto Creative Media. Our original music was composed by DJ Spar and performed by DJ and Kimberly Spar. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time for Listening on Purpose.